Welcome to this week's episode of the TLS podcast. I'm Alex Clark and Lucy Dallas, the TLS's arts editor, is here with me. Hello, Lucy. Lucky for you, you're not with me because I'm in the teeth of a storm at the minute here in the hills of Ireland. We can sort of almost hear it. You're a bit glitchy, aren't you? Because there's biblical amounts of rain and wind and all that going on, is there? The local GAA ground is underwater. I know we often talk about gardening, but frankly, you know, it's a water garden now. Yes, I am. And the winds are very, very high. So forgive me, dear listeners. I'm hanging on here. I'm hanging on. She's bravely broadcasting from the eye of the storm. The eye of the storm. But isn't it interesting? One of the things that we thought we might chat about this week was the fact that we both watched the online streaming of Greta Thunberg's event at the South Bank. So, of course, you know, unusual weather events very much a part of that. What did you take from it, Lucy? I thought she's remarkably thoughtful and without ego and sort of consistent about what she wants to talk about and not getting sidetracked and things. I think, I mean, I think she's pretty extraordinary, to be honest. What did you think? Yes, I thought similar. And I I thought she was, not that she hasn't been before, but I was very struck by how political she was. And I don't, I mean, obviously she's political, but I mean, she spoke very sort of rousingly and definitively about the global problems of exploitation and oppression Mm. and colonialism, you know, which is something perhaps we didn't, you know, years ago was not perhaps the frame in which, you know, the mainstream was thinking about climate change. But she was talking about, you know, a very germane, I suppose, at the moment, thoughts about economic growth, but how economic growth has led to the climate crisis. It was fascinating, actually. Mm, She was funny, wasn't she, too? Yeah, 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 she was. And she's obviously... I mean, she said that the book, she was talking about a book, wasn't she? The climate book. She wrote it in lockdown because she had, you know, time at home to think, as we all did. And she's obviously thought deeply about it. It's interesting also that she's talked about the media and that the media has a lot of responsibility for how they portray it and how they talk about it. I feel like there's been quite a lot of that. We're part of the media. We can't just say, oh, with, you know, we do literature, so we have nothing to do with climate change. It's all... People are writing fiction about it now and writing poetry, writing all sorts Absolutely. of about it. I mean, Amitav Ghosh is one of the contributors to the book, isn't he? I mean, I mean yes. many, yeah. many contributors yeah. and many writers, but, you know, he's written so extraordinarily about climate change. Mm. And Richard Powers has done it in fiction, but he's writing about the same thing. I saw a piece by Annie Prue in Vogue. I'm not a usual Vogue reader, I have to say. If you, you could see what I was wearing, you would know. You would know that I have no business reading. Is it that, that you prefer Tabla? Is that why? <laughs> not even, not at all. She was very interesting and she was saying, because she's written a book about, I think, the wetlands. I mean, she's been environmentally aware for quite a long time, but she said something like that she thought at the moment it felt not quite right to be writing fiction even. Mm. But she felt that, you know, the job of a writer was to sort of communicate about this. So I think it's, yeah, it's something that we all have a responsibility for. We've got a piece actually in the TLS this week by Anne Pettifor on mass migration that will happen globally and a review of the book The Children of the Anthropocene by Bella Lack, who's bringing stories from around the world of how young people are, what they're doing in response to it. And I think she wrote it when she was 18. So, you know, they're doing brilliantly, the young folk. It's a shame they have to deal with it. And also, obviously, it's not just them who has to deal with it. I also supposed to remind you, which I always forget this, and I really should remember, that if you actually buy the TLS or subscribe to it, you can read all these wonderful pieces. 
as well as hearing us going on about them. Before we go on to what we have got in the show, I just wanted to a very brief moment of sadness for the death of Julie Powell, the food mm. writer and blogger whose blog gave rise to the book and then the film Julie and Julia. She's died at a very young age and very suddenly. And I've enjoyed her writing about food so much and her writing about herself. I think she sort of took it to a, a kind of different place. It was such a brilliant idea to be, she was living in a little apartment, wasn't she? And she just kind of went, okay, I'm going to do one of these real old school French heavy style cooking every day. What an extraordinary thing to do. I'm going to cook my way through Julia Child's work. Yes, really amazing. And uh, we are actually talking a little bit about a sort of very memorable element of French cuisine later, aren't we? Because coming up on this show, we will have the wonderful novelist Andre Asselin talking about Proust and the return of the murderous ne'er-do-well, Freddie Montgomery, one of John Banville's most celebrated creations. But first, those of you with long memories, memory is going to be important in this one, here's a heads up. You may recall that last year we talked about Marcel Proust's way and how 150 years after his birth, his legacy got so great that a local railway station was renamed after his fictional town. And this year, we're still celebrating all things Proustian since it's the centenary of his death. And we're delighted that the author of Call Me By Your Name, Find Me and More, Andre Asiman, who is also a professor of comparative literature and has been teaching Proust for years, has written us a beautiful piece. This will convince you to tackle Proust if you haven't already, despite academia's best attempts to persuade you otherwise. A la recherche, he says, is by no means difficult to read or understand. Andre, many thanks. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you. You're welcome. And thank you for having me. So could you recap the point that you make at the beginning of your piece, the contrast that you make between Ulysses and A la Recherche? Yes, I think that, and it's funny that I've just listened to all of Ulysses for about the past four weeks. It takes a long time and I've been in Rome. And so Ulysses has defined my walks in Rome. However, Ulysses is a difficult book. You need to have a text that explains to you what it is exactly that you're reading and what are all those references about, because otherwise the text doesn't make much sense. So you're constantly turning to other books to help you understand what is happening in Ulysses. And the industry has been smart because every publisher, I think, has a companion or a guide to Ulysses. Whereas Proust's book is totally different. I said that in the piece that I started Proust at the age of 18, 19, and uh, I just kept reading because it was easy to understand. Once you understand what the style is, you just read almost for the plot. And the plot is extremely rich, but at the same time, it's a very thinking man's book. So on one hand, it's easy to get. You read through it. It's a page turner. And on the other hand, when you start to teach it or when you are a graduate student and you want to hear somebody talk about it, you can understand why you can spend a whole three hours on half a page. So it's really up to you what you want to do. If you are interested in references, then you're going to live the rest of your life rereading and reading about Proust. If you want to read the book for the story, for the thoughts, for the insights that he has in so many characters, just read the book. As you say in the piece, for the cadences, for the sort of rhythm of it, 
Yes. Well, the rhythm, of course, is part of the world that Proust has created. Every sentence has a particular sort of rhythm to it. It's a cadence. And once you are sort of used to that cadence, and it takes about three pages, once you get used to the cadence, then you slip into the cadence. You slip into those sentences, and they become almost yours. So that what you're looking at is not Proust looking at reality, at Paris, at the world as he saw it, but you begin to understand that you yourself are now sort of authoring the book as you go along. So you are looking into his world, but at the same time, he's making you look at your own world and ultimately at yourself. And you do say that the sentences and the cadences take a little bit of getting used to. But as you say, it's not uniquely difficult, is it? I was trying to think of, there was one fairly recent writer I can think of whose style might be comparable or somewhat similar is Javier Marias, though his subject matter is obviously very different. I mean, has he been very influential in terms of style as well as content, Proust? Well, Javier Marias is nothing close to Proust. Let's say that. No, not as good as necessarily. <laughs> I just meant <laughs> I meant that the kind of length and the intricacy and the digressions is is really he, what I meant. Yes, but Proust is seldom just digressive. He may seem to be digressive, but he picks up exactly where he left off. So he has good memory. He's very has fantastic good manners. Uh, if you met Proust in an elevator, he wouldn't totally take over your world. He would gradually allow you to induct yourself into his without your even knowing it because he's extremely charming. And um, so essentially it's a totally different world. Javier Marias is always sort of a bit darker than Proust is. Proust is, I think, in ultimately, and I hate to say that, he's serene, even in the moments of absolute pain and torment and anxiety. He is still serene. So you always have a feeling that, yeah, maybe it's artificially serene. Yes, I will, might grant you that. But it's wonderful to see somebody who is so sick and so close to death and missing so many things in life that he hasn't really lost. But loss is very important to him. That in a sense, he's able to sail through all these sorrows and at the same time come out with what I call, you know, sort of the Charlie Chaplin kicking of his heels. You know, he picks up. And I love that about Proust. He could be macabre. But at the same time, he's always serene, and I love it. Mm, I love that image. In fact, after I read your piece, I went and watched Charlie <laughs> Chaplin at the end of the film, and it's beautiful because he's so sad, it would break yes. your heart. And then he walks, he sort of shambles off, and then you just get a little click, which changes everything. I think that's a point that's hardly ever made, your point, that along with the popular image of Proust's digressive, let's say, digressive, melancholy, yes. nostalgic style and tone is a much sharper tone working along with it, undercutting the expectations, which has a lot of wit and a lot of irony. Is that a good characterization of what you're saying? It's perfect. It's actually perfect because I do think that if you look at the early material that Proust used to write, it was always either extremely lyrical or extremely mundane almost to the point of silliness. And then suddenly he realizes that his strong point is the lyricism. 
the invocatory way that he has of even looking at flowers and or the dress and sort of essentially allowing his style to blossom out. But then he has this countervailing instinct, which is to take whatever he said and turn it on its head and sort of almost make fun of it, which is what is the strength of Proust's style. He goes from lyricism and rhapsody sometimes, and then he turns it around and becomes sort of the the naughty boy who's going to basically uh, blow up the bubble and show you that you were, if you expected beauty to come out of this, well, you got some form of beauty, but the beauty now exists in its ability to turn things upside down. And uh, eventually, I think that that becomes the signature of Proust. It's always expect something to happen towards the end of the sentence that will turn it around. And of course, surprise every single expectation you had. Mm -hmm. You track as well how the world famous Madeleine started out basically <laughs> as a bit of stale old bread. Which is I was not... really hoping you would come to that, Lucy, because it was so interesting in your piece. Yes, the Madeleine did not start out as a delicious little cake, did it? Well, I had a problem with that because I discussed it with the editor of the piece. And I said, if it's going to be rancid or sort of stale bread, I don't see how Proust's household could have had stale bread. They would do something with that bread if they didn't want to throw it out. But at the same time, Proust would not be eating stale bread. And yet that is exactly how it started with a piece. And it's not even toast. It's kind of hardened bread. It, yeah, it's chassi, isn't it? It's like out of date. You wouldn't eat it. Yes, you would not eat it. And that's, of course, if you know this, in America, we have something called French toast, which is pain perdu. In other words, it's sort of wasted bread that you don't want to throw out. So you put eggs on it and you fry it and it becomes quite good if you put syrup on it. But at the same time, I don't see him doing that. But he did have that as a starting point. Then he changed his mind. And I love that he did that. In, in a sense, nothing is ever established forever in Proust. He might change his mind. He might even change his mind about the Madeleine. Having spent so much time crafting this thing called the Madeleine, he might decide that, no, maybe I don't want it. It's a Baba Oron that he really was talking about. I mean, I'm just making this up. But one has a feeling that everything that should seem fixed and immovable in Proust could be moved around again and again and again so that nothing is permanent and of course that's true of every emotion in the book, every relationship in the book and every character, everybody turns out to be someone else And is that something I wonder to do with it, it's not the Madeleine itself that it's important it's the human experience but it's crucial that the experience as you say is sort of artificial which makes it sound bad but really but it's enriched by art it's experience at one remove at him working very hard as you do a little mini close reading of how it goes from the stale bread to the Madeleine and all the ramifications and the resonances of it the crucial thing is that he has put his art into that experience yes absolutely but it's not finished though this is the thing that I'm trying to say, is that mm. even however the Madeleine being sort of this piece of bread that you, because I don't know if all the listeners know what a Madeleine is, but it's a sort of spongy cake that you dunk into tea and you bite into it. And the next thing you know is it reminds you of your great aunt and in her house when she used to give you the same thing when you were a little boy. Well, we all have memories like that. 
And what I'm trying to say is that Proust might have discovered that it was sort of stale bread initially, then toasted bread, then Melba toast, and finally the Madeleine. But we never know that this is going to stop at the Madeleine. He might have gone on with some other cake. But it, it doesn't really matter. The fact is that he's concretized around the Madeleine the whole sort of seven volumes of his life. It's about the Madeleine. And so he's anchored it into the Madeleine. And it's perfect as it is. It's an amazing moment in the world of literature from beginning to Marcel Proust. Never has had a Madeleine. They have had memories and they have had all kinds of invocations of the past, but nothing like a Madeleine. You say in, your, in the piece that you have taught Proust to doctoral students and undergraduates and high school students. What is your approach and does it change very much according to who you're teaching or not really? Not really. This is the amazing fact is that a boy who's, say, 17 or 16 years old, which I've done in the past, and I've done it a few times to make sure that I wasn't making it up. A person who's in an adolescent reading Proust is ultimately the perfect reader of Proust uh, in the way that, say, Catcher in the Rye should be read by adolescents because it will make sense to an adolescent more. And in Proust, of course, Proust is an adolescent, I think, for the first novel and a half. He's really in his teens, as far as I can tell. So it reverberates with a teenager. And again, a teenager might feel that after the first two, three pages, he might want to give up because it's not exactly a happening kind of book. But eventually you realize, wait a second, this is me you're talking about because he is writing about you ultimately. And so in, in many respects, an adolescent understands it. And after the third page, that's why I always say, give it three pages. Then you realize that you are immersed in a universe that is totally, totally understandable and clear. It is so clear because Proust wanted to be clear. He couldn't stand obscurity because obscurity is really a way of not thinking well enough. And he was very well brought up. So in many respects, I like the response from an adolescent is. I've also taught it to freshman students. I had twice at Princeton when I was there, I taught a freshman seminar where they had to read the whole La Recherche in one semester. And they were fabulous students. They were sort of self-selected. I selected them, but they had applied. They wanted to read this, so they knew what they were getting into. And at the age of 19, they're perfect readers, again. And also teach it to graduate students who are, in many respects, thrown back to their earlier years as an adolescence themselves. And they still understand it. They have a bigger vantage point. In other words, they understand complexity. They understand that Virginia Woolf and almost Henry James had written at the same time. James Joyce basically met Proust once in his life. Yeah, so you have a confluence of things that a, a graduate student can bring in to enrich his experience of the text, but the reading of the story itself is always clear and is the same with a teenager, a person in his early 20s or 19 or so, and in a graduate student who could be 35 years old. Mm. It's interesting that, again, it's not something you ever hear, you know, the idea that, and I suppose it's, Partly, I wonder, might it appeal to teenagers? As you say, he's young for the first book and a half. 
Partly because it's that it's all about him. I mean, that sounds like a ridiculous thing to say. I mean, it's all about the absolute details of his life and his consciousness. And of course, that opens and develops. But still, teenagers, they're working out who they are and how they perceive things and how they are perceived. They think about themselves a lot, don't they? And that's the view you get. Well, I think we all think about ourselves. Yes. All right. Okay. <laughs> okay we don't admit enough. it. We don't want to say it. But in a sense, yes, an adolescent is somebody whose world has not been constructed yet. Yes. And so they're putting the pieces together and trying them out. But that is a thing about proofs. And maybe we can come back now to the idea of cadence, is that the cadence allows proofs to say things that, say, Hemingway would never have been able to say because Hemingway's sentences are so short and they have no music to them. And the music, you may say, oh, music is artificial, it's just a concoction with words. Not exactly. The music is a tool of allowing you to enter into the consciousness of the text and therefore finding that this consciousness is also yours. A short-clipped writer will never be able to induct you into his world. Take, for example, a writer like Jane Austen. Jane Austen happens to be one of my favorite writers. Her sentences are longer, and she has a way of giving you information that is always slightly withheld and finally given to you totally. And it's the lapse between the two that is exactly her great art, is that she makes you wait and mistake certain assumptions and so on, and then finally reveals to you the information you need. In other words, what you have in both writers, Jane Austen and Proust, and there are many other writers like that, who have a way of building time in their sentences. They need time for you to allow yourself to sneak into their universe. Without time, then you're dealing with just information, as I like to call it. You know, many writers give you information. That's all they can give you, information, plot, character study, whatever. Whereas with time, however, you have a way of calibrating and sort of segmenting information in such a way that it finally hits you in the face when the author wants you to have it that way. Andre, I wonder if I could ask you, we were talking about influence there, and I wondered to what extent, if any, you felt that Proust had been somebody you'd carried with you in your writing, thinking about how much novels like Call Me By Your Name and Find Me are concerned with acts of memory, with different perceptions of events at a period of time. Is it is he somebody you've been conscious of holding within your own consciousness as a writer? Put it this way, the, the short answer, I'll give you the long one in a minute. The short answer is that once you read Proust, he changes you, who you are. It's like reading Freud. You cannot read Freud and say, okay, I've read Freud and never give it another thought. Once you read Freud, once you read Proust, they stay with you. They also allow you to build your insights about people in a way that you were never able to do so before reading Freud or Proust. I'm just picking up those two because they're evident. So in many respects, this is the craft of Proust is to allow you to change your point of view on a host of things. I used to trust people when I was much younger. After reading Proust, I still continue to trust them. But I'm not surprised when they essentially turn a new face on me 
and I say to myself, you know what? I have seen this. I expected this, but I couldn't believe it would happen. It is the prophetic quality that Proust has in studying characters that you begin to sort of borrow from him. And you can't let go of it because it is an enriching experience. But Proust also has taught me how not only how to investigate human beings and expect sometimes the best, sometimes the worst of them, but also he has taught me that, you know, if you find to capture something that is almost at your fingertips, but you haven't quite caught it, keep writing the sentence, don't close it. I always give that advice to my students is, you know, keep going with the sentence. Don't put a full stop. Just put a comma, put a semicolon or M dash. Just let yourself keep digging and you will arrive at something. Mm. I'm afraid that we would like to carry on talking about this. As you say, we could do it for the rest of our lives. But sadly, we have to stop. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you all. Thank you very, Thank very, you much. very much. Bye bye. Bye. Still to come on the show, John Banville's new novel and the return of Freddie Montgomery. And if you've enjoyed what we've discussed so far this week, let me remind you that you can subscribe to this podcast for free wherever you normally get your podcasts and you'll never miss an episode. I'm Alex Clark. John Banville is also back, and so is Freddie Montgomery, the thief-turned-murderer we first met in 1989's The Book of Evidence, a novel narrated from the prison cell where he's serving a life sentence. Well, in Banville's new novel, The Singularities, Montgomery is out of jail and has assumed a completely new identity. He's headed back to the scene of his crime, a country house now inhabited by a set of characters familiar from another Banville novel. Confused? You won't be after Richard Lee has explained the whole thing to you. Welcome, Richard. Hello. Already, you've given away a couple of spoilers right there, because Freddie was, of course, introduced to us as an entirely different person, Felix Mordrant, or Felix Mordrant, as he prefers. That is a spoiler, but it's a very quickly dispelled spoiler, isn't it? (laughs) I think it's dispelled even in the blurb, isn't it? I feel bad now. But anyway, I think you'll know this within about three pages, readers. Exactly. And I think spoilers isn't really quite what we're on about in this novel. It's what we might say, not that kind of novel, is it? (laughs) Exactly. Well, Freddie, or Felix, as he prefers to call himself, is heading back to Arden, the country house of Adam Godley, the professor of physics and inventor of the Brahma theory, who lauded it over the infinities back in 2009. 
and is in fact still very much the kind of reigning presence over this novel set 20 years later. The novels, they're very close echoes, aren't they, Alex? Instead of Adam Godley being confined upstairs in this novel, his wife Ursula is kind of relegated to the upper stories of the house. Instead of Ursula drinking, Helen, his um, Adam Godley's daughter-in-law, is drinking. And then instead of one Adam Godley biographer, another arrives, Professor J.B., who um, may, again, be slightly familiar to our readers. Yes, exactly. I know. I mean, these novels are obviously sort of talking to one another. And you've got this series that Banville does. So the Book of Evidence, Ghosts, Athena. Then there's another trilogy with the characters Alexander and Cass Cleave, the Cleave trilogy. And they make sort of, as it were, kind of offstage appearances in this book too. And then you have, you know, clearly the titles suggest a companionship, don't they? The Infinities, the Singularities, both of them kind of paradoxical because can you have more than one infinity? Can you have more than one singularity? Ah, well, um, obviously, if you want to talk maths, then we've got a lot to talk about, Alex. <laughs> I don't want to talk maths. That was about, I got very bewildered by that. And I decided that my best way to read my way through that was to simply treat it all as metaphor. But I thought if I tried to actually understand multiverses, Terrific. It, was all, it was all going to go wrong. Very wise. To complete your trio, there's also the blue guitar, which features the Brahmo theory. So which you might think that that's a companion novel here as well, the, the one in the middle, as it were. The thing I suppose that we want to kind of talk about and ask our listeners also to think about is whether this is all sort of a kind of game playing for us, a jeu d'esprit, if you like, if it's something that Banville is doing to keep himself amused, or why is he doing it? Why all these repeating characters, these repeating places, these overlapping and interlocking plots and characters? What's it all about? Why is he doing it? I'm not sure if I've got a very good answer to that, Alex. I mean, to me, it just all feels a bit weary. It feels like he's running out of steam in this world in a way that reflects the way that our world in the real world sometimes feels like it's running out of steam. It feels kind of, it feels quite Brexity to me, quite kind of post-truth, quite climate crisis impending doomy to me, as if everything's kind of running out of gas. Mm. And I mean, there's ways in which, I mean, that's how the Brahma theory feels in this novel, the infinities. The Brahma theory felt like it was opening up a world of possibilities, of infinities indeed. Whereas here, the singularities, it, it feels very much more like it's limiting, like it's running out. There's even a way in which the, the theory is cutting things off rather than open things out. It, it, he suggests that every time something is discovered, it shuts off some other area of knowledge, which feels very kind of doom and gloom. And then he even kind of looks forward to a far future in which the universe is reduced to a set of singularities, infinitesimal points of infinite mass getting ready to burst and us not dreamt of yet. It feels kind of like a finishing thing. Why do you think he's brought all of these characters back? I think he's very interested in entropy and the idea of, you know, the philosophical, the scientific, and also the personal, emotional idea of entropy, of what happens when, like Freddie Montgomery, Felix Mordaunt, he doesn't even have one version of his new name. You've done something that breaches the rules, moral rules, social rules, everything so greatly. So early on in your life, what then happens? It's just a sort of collapse thereafter. I think all these characters are so sort of puckish in a way. I mean, it's a very elusive novel, not only to Banville's other work, but also to loads of works of literature, but Prospero hangs very heavily over this novel. 
Mm, he's even got a circus, hasn't he? <laughs> that's right. That's right. And it it is a very sort of our revels now are ended kind of feeling. I agree with you. I mean, I was very interested in the idea that it was sort of Banville's farewell novel, but I also think that's a game. I don't think it's a sort of literal, you know, this is my my last novel. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, again, without wanting to give too much away, he ends it almost with a performance of ending, with a way of kind of making explicit the idea that this is finished, it's done, he's moving on. It is very much the kind of bringing down the curtain. It's also that feeling of what it's like when the curtain was brought down a long time ago. I mean, Helen, who lost a child, in fact, the burgeoning child who was the happy ending, as it were, of the infinities, in the interim is lost, and she is now the shell of her former self because of it. And as you say, Freddie is dealing with the fact of having become this awful thing by doing this awful act. It's very much exploring those kind of fag ends of life in all sorts of different ways. It's interesting, isn't it, that the number of basically dead people there are throughout the work, and they are often dead children. Freddie also has a dead child. Obviously, Cleave trilogy is is about that sort of mourning and, and loss for somebody who is doomed. And there is a kind of revisiting of that whole episode of Cass Cleave and Axel Vander, that kind of sort of torrid time in a, in a foreign city that's as often Banville, you know, these abandoned cityscapes and hotel rooms and drives. This is his kind of milieu, isn't it? Absolutely. And there's a straightforward echo as well of an episode towards the end of The Infinities, where Adam Godley once again finds himself in Venice and once again is dealing with a woman who is at the end of her tether in a kind of way. I mean, it's bringing these characters together is very much like the kind of Marvel cinematic universe. It's a <laughs> yes. similar kind of, here they all come. But in the Marvel universe, you've got rather more in terms of plot to go with the kind of fireworks. I mean, the fireworks here are pros and Banville's eyes as acute as ever. He's, he's got some terrific moments of description. But there's not very much in terms of arc. It's this, as you say, this steady decay, this slow wind down. I mean, even the weather seems to be slowing down. The planet itself is, feels flattened by this new version of the Brahma theory, which is all, all about decay. Yes, that kind of idea of the atmosphere. I mean, there is a very sort of heavy atmosphere. In this book. See, I loved that. I was completely captivated by this novel. The business of plot didn't really bother me that much. It was the sort of those moments of description that he goes in for. You know, there's a kind of sexual encounter between two principal characters at one point, And it's imagined so extraordinarily and such. And it's so unhappy really. Absolutely. An awful moment. Awful, awful kind of moment. Very vividly brought to life. Absolutely. As you say. I mean, I just sort of don't quite understand how he does that writing because let's not beat around the book. I mean, there's a lot of vocabulary in this novel apart from <laughs> anything else. I mean, you know, one could read it. I mean, I know that our listeners are very extensive vocabularies themselves, but you know, I defy anyone not to need to look something up at some point. <laughs> No, I mean, it's again, it feels slightly less so than The Infinities, which I think is very rich in a kind of Will Selfian tone. But I mean, there's also some great little jokes. I mean, there's the moment where, he, where the, one of the narrators says, Flaubert, c'est moi. I mean, it's just a, a marvellous little, little aside. And then you've got the, the marvellous footnote. He gives us a chunk of the biographer's biography of Adam Godley. He gives us a chunk of that as the middle section of the novel. And there's a brilliant game with the footnotes, one of which reveals how Adam Godley thought that he'd won the Sobrero Prize, whereas in fact it was a hoax which reminds us that John Banville himself in 2017 was hoaxed about the Nobel Prize. In the footnote in this novel, Banville goes on to suggest that, of course, of course, Adam Godley goes on to win it. 
Yes, exactly. Whereas I think Bambula said very recently in an interview, they'll never give it to me now. <laughs> you know, which is, I mean, I may also say, they'll never give it to me either. You know, it's, uh, <laughs> it's just tweaking there. Just these nice little flashes. It's marvellous. You wouldn't entirely say the figure of William J.B. And, and Banville's full name is William John Banville. You wouldn't entirely say that he was an, a wholly sympathetic character. I mean, he's a slight buffoon, isn't he? Absolutely. And he's, again, he's smart enough. He's funny enough, actually, to pull jokes at his own expense, where one of his avatars actually, in another footnote, pours scorn on the florid prose style of another. I mean, it, he's playing games all the way here. And I think you're absolutely right. This uh, world weary, definitive ending is, is another game. I thought so. I wondered also if we would talk a little bit about Benjamin Black. Banville's crime writing alter ego has written several books featuring the quirk, the pathologist quirk, who then appears in his last published novel, April in Spain, that came out a year or two ago. But that's published under John Banville's name. That's that's not a Benjamin Black novel. It's like he's merging these identities. The, the two, as it were, Marvel universes are sort of getting <laughs> brought a little bit closer Ever closer. Together. And equally and symmetrically, Benjamin Black's last novel doesn't feature quirk at all. It's in fact set in 16th century Prague. I mean, it seems to me that perhaps the Benjamin Black experiment, which I think was a release for John Banville, who says that writing fiction under his own name is like wading through mud, whereas Benjamin Black is, of course, very very prodigiously quick and knock out a novel in a couple of months. I think it was a release for him. And I think that experiment has had effects on both sides, which are now drawing them together. It's, it's fascinating to see that at work. Yes, it's so interesting, isn't it? Because Banville, you know, again, it might be a, a sort of slightly deceptive performance, a kind of, you know, a sort of joke for himself in a way. But I mean, he talks so openly about how much he hates his own writing and how much he hates <laughs> his novels. He talks about the shame he feels, the embarrassment he feels and the torture he feels and won't read them and won't look at them and just hates everything he's written. One, you know, I think has to take that as a sort of complex kind of artistic statement rather than a complete face value. It's a marvellous way of fending off the critics, isn't it? It is. <laughs> it is. But he does seem to... I mean, one of the things that I thought was interesting about the last book, April in Spain, you know, it does have not only this proper sort of murder mystery in it, but it also has this kind of political backstory, the idea of a political class implicated in violent crime and in the cover-up of violent crime. And that connects to the figure of... Freddie Montgomery, who, you know, is based partly on a real crime in Ireland in 1982, a few years before uh, the book was written. On Malcolm MacArthur, you're right. And this kind of political thing, I think, is an import from the world of Benjamin Black, who Benjamin Black was has been exploring the kind of the dead hand of authorities of various sorts on Irish society in the 1950s for years. I mean, that's it seems to be a fertilisation that has gone, as it were, the other way. I think it's fascinating to imagine where the kind of facility that Banville says that he has at Benjamin Black, where this facility might take him next as John Banville, particularly for my taste, if he can find a universe that's got slightly more kind of vim to it, slightly more vigour than this decaying universe of the singularities. Do you think that it will be a universe governed by drama theory? 
But it feels to me very much like the Brahma theory is part of this trilogy as, as laid out with the infinities, the blue guitar and here in the singularities. And it also feels to me very much not only as if the story, the characters, the setting is coming to an end, but also that kind of physical background is also on its last legs here. I mean, here it seems almost more important and more pessimistic. It's more important because there's various bits of the, the plots of other novels that need gluing together. And the kind of the flex, the wobble, the uncertainty that comes with the Brahma theory's um, infinities allows Bandle to explain away various differences. That the, the house is called Coolgrange in the Book of Evidence, and it's called Arden here. Oh, the, the characters will at one point or another say, oh, that's a bit strange, isn't it? Oh, that's because it was, you know, the, because Adam Godley has, has interfered in his godless way. And it seems that that strategy, which in the blue guitar and in the infinities was almost a way of making the world fresh for us, has now become more, both more important and more kind of present. And I think that this trio may be the end of it. So another physics will be necessary for the, for the next novel, perhaps. I will just mention a very funny thing in the novel, I thought, I don't know if you agree, but these little touches of science fiction. It's a little bit like they were to me, and I don't suppose many people talk about Cold Comfort Farm when they're talking about John Banville, but there's a moment in Cold Comfort Farm where suddenly something wildly sort of futuristic happens and it's not explained anywhere and it's completely, you know, nothing nothing really like it happens elsewhere in the novel. And the same happens here, doesn't it? Very strange. What did you make of those bits? I don't know if you would count it because you're quite strict about these things. Would you call that a spoiler if we said what it was? No, go for it. There's a couple, aren't there? I mean, there's the meeting that happens in New Amsterdam rather than New York. There's yes. the cars that work on salt water instead of fuel and so smell of the sea. I mean, it's that these details in the infinities and in the blue guitar, these details seem to be kind of background things, little jolts, just to remind the reader that actually it's all made up, that ways in which Banville could attempt to give us the world back around us, but give us the world fresh, make it new in some way. Whereas here, as I say, for me, the Brahma theory feels much more present. It feels much more kind of part of the weft of the novel. And it seems to me that that, as I say, that's a strategy that seems to be playing out rather here. Right. New Amsterdam it stands in for New York because there has been a war between Holland and the United States. Not something I think we can easily see happening, even in this <laughs> kind of volatile world in which we live in. But then you have these sort of moments when you have pieces of writing and description and settings that are so, I mean, I, for me, the house, as it's described, has something unmistakably of the kind of Molly Keane about it. And then... Mm, or Borgesian almost, isn't it? Yes, you have that sort of fading kind of death-bound sort of aristocracy in a crumbling house. And then you have, you know, the same little town that the Booker winning The Sea was set in comes up briefly, is, is visited briefly. And that is, again, something that could be from a novel at any point in the last kind of hundred years, really. So this sort of fusing of timescapes is fascinating. But Felix Morden, of course, recalls Max Morden, the, the season narrator, and he, as you say, he goes to the beach and he reflects on his childhood and his childhood loves. I mean, it's very much like a, a blast from the past again. Richard, we I don't know if we've untangled this for our listeners. I hugely enjoyed this novel and I 
was also very delighted to keep recognizing people because it makes me think I'm a good reader of things, <laughs> good rememberer. I just want to, before we, we let you go with our great thanks, tell me a little bit about your project, the project that you're working on, Fictionable. Oh, well, Fictionable's fun. It's a quarterly of short fiction from all around the world. And we've got a, a, a thing whereby we're doing something in translation and a graphic story every time. So we're, we're bringing voices from all over the place, some of the best writing from all around the world and publishing it every every few months. I mean, the last issue just went out. We've got a story from Evie Wilde called The Land and one from Amy Sackville. Also wonderful. Also wonderful. A dreamy kind of entrance into a port and the kind of the, the, what kicks off from there. We've got a, a story from Arinzi Fikandu, who's uh, just published his first collection with Weidenfeld. Terrific little story. And then there's a comic from Julian Hanshaw. I mean, it's an awful lot of fun. And we've got some some great things coming up for the future. It's a really, really interesting project. I wish you huge success. Just quickly say where people can get hold of it. Ah, we're at fictionable.world. And you can also find us in audio form on the Fictionable podcast. Just search for Fictionable and I'm sure you'll find us. Thank you so much, Richard Lee, for decoding the mysteries of the Banville universe. have time for this week our thanks go to andre asserman and richard lee thank you for listening to this episode of the tls podcast produced by charlotte pardy we'll be back next week but for now from lucy dallas and from me goodbye Small details are big surfaces, tight corners are odd shapes, flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rustolium.